Hello and welcome to the Heads and Volleys podcast with me, Lee Dunn. This episode is an interview with Barry McCabe. He is a strength and conditioning coach and has done a bunch of work with the players and teams that I work with. He came to the game as a former professional and has followed along the pathway of sports science and because of that he has a really interesting view of how to engage your players and ultimately really how I see the, the disservice that we offer our players when we are working in environments as a coach and we know how to move the X's and the O's but we don't necessarily know how to engage the player to move as the X or the O and how we can develop them and understand that we have a group of 12 to 15 players and those 12 to 15 players are not all the same they're not all of the same maturation they're not all the same in development. So this conversation really highlights the differences in players, how you can bring in these measurements to your own environment and the simple understanding of what that means. And so you begin to consider workloads or at least what you're demanding of your players based on their physical age and not just their birthday in comparison to everybody else, but their actual physical development level. So it's a really interesting conversation with Barry and I hope you enjoy it. And before I get into that, just a quick thank you again, as always, to Tactical Pad for their sponsorship. Their animated gifts for my players continue to deliver. They continue to help me articulate what I'm looking to deliver to my players and for them to understand it before they even get to practice. And then even in a game last weekend, I pulled one up and said, do you remember this moment from practice? This is a moment that we just scored a goal from. This is what we want to continue to work on. So again, thank you to Tactical Pad. And here we go with Barry McCabe. Um, my name is Barry McCabe and I am originally from Ireland, um, living in San Francisco currently. I think I'll work backwards. Um, I've been coaching as an athletic development coach and soccer coach here in the Bay Area for the last few years. Um, and the athletic development work has been soccer specific. It's been working with youth soccer players primarily. And before that, I... Education-wise, got through an undergrad and master's degree in exercise science and human performance, which got me a lot of experience working with athletes of all different sports, I suppose, and different levels, and got me a chance to do a lot of research, lab-based research, field-based research, and understanding where we get our information today from, and a lot of this through research. So that was it was exciting to be involved in that. Um, and I played full-time in Ireland for about five years, which was another great experience. Because, I mean, that's all growing up in Ireland is all you wanted to do was to become some sort of athlete or right. some sort of, some sort of uh, sports star. And uh, um, I spent, that was my whole identity as a kid was, was, was playing sports and primarily soccer. And it got me to age 17 when I uh, signed my first contract and joined a team in Dublin. In Ireland, um, but the setup was such that I, I, I got a study part time as well, which is a pretty unique setup for a full time player and getting a study part time, which my parents loved because I had that degree to yeah. back up on. Because that's always the challenge with you know you got to commit to playing being a pro at age fifteen and sixteen and you throw away your education. But but I was never at the level of making it over to England at that young age, so this is a good route for me, and and actually ended up getting more and more interest into sports science and coaching that actually probably took away a little bit of my love and energy for playing football full time because it's not for everyone you know people people don't people don't understand that it's like playing full time is fatiguing and tough and um, that's kind of created my identity currently is having that playing experience but also really having probably a bigger love now for for coaching and athletic development and working with kids and teams I think there's a it's very typical to hear of many players, especially from Europe and the UK, that follow the pathway of wanting to become a pro. And I've got plenty of friends that did that and didn't make it and then get to 17, 18 years old with very little education because everything went into yeah. becoming a pro. And now here you are kind of moving and meandering away from that to now recognizing that actually it served me really well yeah. as the saying goes, stay in school, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was <laughs> frustrated as hell with my parents when I was 15, 16, there was clubs interest in taking me over on trial and I don't think that was an option because of the values they held and 
I'm thankful now that that was the case because I'm I'm really grateful the route that I got I got to take in the end. So your your masters in performance enhancement and injury prevention, so that was kind of came from your part study as well as playing. I guess one of my first questions would be: Are there a lot of myths that people hold in terms of what you need to do as a player or? kind of the the typical like sprinting idea and we'll kind of move into that shortly but you kind of talk about research and the answers in the numbers typically right yeah yeah and i think that's what's one of the strong points i have is having that education background is understanding where we get our current information from just purely in the sports science world is we get it from people testing ideas and people testing theories and uh, testing, testing different training strategies in labs and gyms and on the field and analyzing if that is actually effective or not. But I think probably currently at all levels of sport, there's all these kind of myths, I suppose, training myths or <clears throat> cultural myths that people think are effective in, in improving their sport or improving their athleticism but they've probably just come from historical efforts or traditional efforts of how to improve certain aspects of your athleticism or your sport of choice but um so there was a lot of myth busting going on which was nice and working under some pretty impressive researchers and professors was you know they were showing us the way and how to be objective in your view and how to be objective in understanding what works and what doesn't work but at the same time, I think being involved with sport, the beauty is the subjectivity to it. Is your your attraction to it? Is your view on it? Um, and how you how, how you view the game or view the sport is is how you'll probably influence the people you work with. Um, so I think there's a bit of a balance between the, the being the objective research and evidence base, but also being subjective on how you see things as well yourself. I guess there's different playing styles too, and things and tasks that you ask of your players too. You look at the press with Klopp and the intensity that he requires of his players and even the the Bielsa with Leeds too and the kind of constant Leeds will tire towards the end of the season because they can't press that much that long yeah. actually they did a pretty good job of it and fell short but there is so much about that subjective belief of how you should play and I know when I've worked with teams and you say that like just 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 hang back just hold let them have the ball just as a different way of playing but the typical soccer parent will see that their kid is not running and they lose their mind. Yeah. Why aren't you running? Chase the ball, press, press, press. Yeah. It's really cool to, to break down those myths and understand the, the physiology side. And I even going as far as, you know, the my coach for Adidas, that you get in your shoe, the chip. Yeah, yeah. I remember getting one of those. Yeah. And when I finished my first game, I get the stats and I look at it. I think, man, I ran like five <laughs> or six miles, whatever it was. Man, I maxed the speed of whatever miles per hour and then I sent it to my dad and my dad said well yeah but look how much walking you did and yeah. that to me was a real kind of moment of saying oh yeah. yeah you don't run the entire time yet that's what you're led to believe by many what you would kind of say old school coaches that's what you know you have to run you have to show effort but there's no real proof of what that is yeah I think with the increased availability of things like that and our GPS's and you know they're, they're at the consumer level now where everyone has access to the information if they want it but it's that's probably driving different and um, different interpretations of what success looks like in soccer or within the whatever sport they're playing it's like oh i ran the 10k and i got to my pro level sprint distance but and that that's that's driving on their training but it's not a challenge that it's not developed them as soccer players um and yeah that's a, that's a big challenge i think in modern coaches with the amount of access that kids have to information and how that's affecting how they view the game and viewing what's important and your challenge as a coach is to re-guide them to what is important and that's it's it's really difficult it's really tough we talk about kind of the almost professionalization professionalizing of youth soccer in that most coaches are compensated many do it full time and kind of what that what that looks like in terms of kind of this engagement with their players and what they're asking of the players and many I believe will not allow or are often dissatisfied with players that are multi-sport athletes that can often be a conflict where I'm a professional coach so I think you should be a professional player too and kind of importing that view on those players so much 
kind of what are you where do you stand on things like multi-sports or things like training loads which I know we'll get into but especially kind of those cross-sport athletes uh, yeah for me a multi-sports approach growing up to a certain age and I think that depends on the individual is is so important um, and we have this identity here in the states that we're professionalizing youth soccer earlier and earlier and asking kids and their families to commit younger and younger it seems like a younger year every single year yeah. kids are coming in a year younger and have any expectations with two and three practices a week at age eight where's the time for the kids to be kids and where's the chance for them to play other sports or you know figure out what, what else they want to do right, and just yeah. not have soccer as their complete identity um, and I also think that that um, we also now live obviously in a society where kids are not outside and especially in the states they're not outside playing till it gets dark and then they have to go home so we've got to even bear that more in mind so what comes first is it more important to be a well-rounded mover like human movement good motor skills or is it really good to, is it more important to be a really good soccer player right but i don't think you can have be a really good, really good soccer player without the, the the movement skills and the motor the motor skills that are necessary to play whatever sport you want to play but in soccer in this case in this case soccer you can't have that you can't be a top soccer player without having that big wide rounded um, motor skill and the only way you acquire these motor skills is through variety when you're a kid and multi-sports is training variety mm-hmm. um, and more advanced than that the multi-sports approach is within youth development has been shown to just create, create more robust athletes and that, that means that they can handle the rigors of the demand and as the demand increases when they get older and they get to those high school ages they've built up a big wide base that they're safe enough now just to now to specialize at age 16 and spend two or three years trying to specialize and you know some would argue that that was too that's too late but other people argue that that's not too late and some some of the european academies have have set hours based on the age of their their players and how much other sports that they actually have to do other sports is not going to the gym and lifting it's actually going to do gymnastics or going to do um ballet or dance or basketball or racket sports and um that's a big identity a lot of academies actually in england and in germany as well they're just the two countries that i know i'm most familiar with so i'm a big advocate of it and um, i think the conversations are always tough with parents and what the parents ask what the kids should be doing and they've got these all these injuries cropping up it's like well they should probably play more sports Right. I should probably try different sports. Diversify, yeah. yeah. And I know from even holding a team meeting last week where I meet my new players and, and I like to do the little kind of quiz with them before they come in and just give me a little bit about who you are. What, what do you do? What do you do outside of school? What school do you go to? Things like that. And do you play other sports? And it's scary that every single one said, soccer is my main sport and I like other sports. And it felt like... Unfortunately, they may have felt pressure to feel like soccer is their only sport. They don't want to let the team down or the coach down or they feel like they're being judged. When actually, I really want you to play just like that. I want you to play other sports and I want you to be honest about it. And maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of the periodization and in terms, and we're both going through the federation licenses now, but in terms of even workloads for players that are playing other sports and coming into your practice, having been to track and things like communication between coaches. Because if, and I've experienced where I've had a super athletic player come to practice who is unusually tired. And the experience I've had growing up was, if you're tired, you need to push harder because you're not working hard. You need to push through it. Yeah. When Actually, he's exhausted because his track coach has probably made him run however many miles or jump however many hurdles. So I need to be conscious of that. And when my players are saying, oh, we don't do anything else, but you do other things, you're just not telling me. And so now it's a vicious cycle, I feel, where this kid is just getting challenged and challenged in in unfair ways and unachievable goals for that kid. Yeah, and and especially if we're not in in a setup where say we're in an academy set up where they're with you 10 months of the year at least with that you could maybe within your environment make sure that the team as a whole do other sports but we deal with kids coming from all these different schools and different programs and track and basketball 
Yeah, it's tough to, you know, can't keep up with it. I don't, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know if anyone has the answer to that at, say, age 11, if you're dealing with 11-year-olds or 12-year-olds. Yeah. I don't know if anyone has the answer to how to how to manage that other than just saying, okay, just take a practice off or do mm. two practices a week. But then because we've also professionalized youth sports, you've got other people, parents, other players being challenged that this kid is only playing, coming twice a week and he's still playing at the, he or she is still playing at the weekends. And it, I think it is a vicious cycle. That's probably the best way to describe it. Um, but I think also in the States, you know, soccer is, is seasonal. And I think if we were more honest with that, maybe at the kind of, not the ultra competitive academy level, but at the competitive level, like we have here in, in, in San Francisco, I, I think if we stuck to the fact that soccer is seasonal, we could use the other parts, the winter and the summer seasons to promote our kids to go play other sports. Um, I get asked questions yeah. now about what soccer summer camp should we go to? Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, sure, go to a soccer camp. You know, our club runs it, other clubs run yeah. soccer camps, soccer camps are everywhere, but yeah. when you go and do an outdoor adventure camp or you know a swim camp or something else go and try something else yeah at least even if you like something go and give it a go yeah don't feel like you have to do soccer yeah i've heard groups of kids come from from teams being organized by parents who are i think maybe seeing this as an issue like we're talking about now is actually organizing that the team go do an outdoor camp or mm. some other sport camp together because they're still doing it as a team and maybe Maybe that ticks one of the boxes because some kids think I, I can't go do basketball because my teammates are not doing it. Well, maybe if we go do it as an entire team and play a you know a six week basketball season in the winter. That's I, a great idea. That's I, I think no, I think that's came from some parents, and I think that's something that we should be able to create more space for us within our year long plans. We've got our fall season, and here's the commitment. And if you're doing other sports, yeah, that's fine. But let's just have the conversation about it and figure out what makes sense for the kid make sure he or she is not exhausted, you know, leading to burnout and taking away it's in the kids' intrinsic love for actually showing up for training and games. But maybe as a team, we go do something different for six or eight weeks in the winter. And it's part of the plan. And it's yeah. set out from the start. And maybe you get parents to drive it. I don't know. I think there's been there's some good success to it. Leave soccer is three days a week game, three days a week game. They don't see it as a recreational or a social tool that I used growing up and you probably used growing mm -hmm. up as like meeting people outside of your team and using the sport to unite, I suppose. Um, I don't think that exists here or doesn't exist enough, not in, not in our environment. No, I agree with you. It's super structured. So I want to kind of touch on something that we've you've done with my team is like maturation and building and developing athletic profiles for our players and really just understanding where they're at physically and kind of touch on that what what you did with my team and and what the idea of it is what the what the long-term goal for that is and um, yeah with the, the maturation testing is, is basically monitoring and kind of assessing players based on their math their maturation age rather than their physical age so you know you get your 12 year olds one is six foot and one is four foot and how, how do we we know that because we can see the difference but how do we use that information to maybe you know manipulate each of those kids individual development plan if you know the six foot has just gone the six foot kid has just gone through a pretty strenuous growth spurt i don't know if that six foot kid can handle the same demands or as the younger you know, hasn't hit puberty kid. Um, and that's why we do this maturation testing is to give the information to the coach, just to equip coaches with more information. Um, and it's all estimations because we don't have access to like the gold standard of, of testing of, you know, doing DEXs and X-rays that they would do in, in top academies in Europe that will really know exactly when you're going to hit your growth spurt and sure. how we can adjust their training load. So we don't pick up injuries like our really common one here is our patella patella tendonitis or you know our shin splints or ashka slatus and that's a lot of that is from um growth spurts and overuse or overuse during growth spurts so the maturation testing is equipping the coaches with an idea that maybe maybe most of their group or maybe some of their group is about to go through a pretty significant growth spurt or they're about to hit their growth spurt or they're about to go through puberty and and um, it's just more information for coaches and um, on a broader sense on a like an international sense and a national sense with even with the u.s soccer federation They've used this information to create um, bio-banded tournaments. So um, 
this was I don't know if it was started in England, but it's been in the in the Premier League academies for years where they they do um, they gather teams for tournaments and they create the teams based on their maturation age rather than their chronological year of birth age. So you could technically have a U14 girl playing up with the U17s and technically maybe you could have a U16 girl playing down with U15s. And the reason for this is to try create better experiences for the individual. So that smaller player playing with bigger players, you've got to think what, what's his or her experience like. Are they actually enjoying being pushed around? Or are they having to really develop their technical, technical skills to shine? And then vice versa is the really mature physical player relying on his or her physical skills to be successful within the game and um, does that take away from their technical understanding their tactical understanding can they get away with it because you know yeah. soccer can be physical so that would be using that information to group players based on their physical growth spurts and their maturation um, and I think the the results of these tournaments they've been doing in the US for the last two years um, is that players have had a better experiences and the games have been in a broad sense more uh, technically demanding sure yeah makes yeah. sense and that would be like a basic description of it. There's more, they have done research and there is results out in this. And I think they're still figuring out how to do this in a broader sense. But there is now rules within development academy in US soccer that players can play up and down. So, um, and I think it's been more and more common now that players are playing up and down because we, we, we're responsible for individual player development as we professionalize youth sports, right? Sure. So this information is maybe to think in a more individual sense is how, you know, the five foot 17 they're four foot 17 year old what's what's his or her experience that was a bad example because he wouldn't have a four foot 17 year old um, it's always possible yeah but i, I think, get it and i just think unfortunately the initial response to a player playing down is the typical coach that goes to a camp yeah. goes to a tournament and has you know they the the sandbaggers right they they bring in this guy oh yeah he's he's not very good he's and, not, and yeah. then suddenly they're winning tournaments and there's unfortunately that tends to be the pushback yeah the the only pushback i've ever heard about things like this has been this kind of logistical playing with the rules to manipulate so you can win or so a coach may win and there's never an argument against it for the benefit of the player like it's not good for the player no one's ever said yeah, that. No one's ever, yeah that's true but the coaches would argue that oh you're playing one of your older players like but that's why so these results in u.s soccer have you know shared strategies on how to do this and anyone could do it it doesn't you know it doesn't take a a background in exercise science or strength conditioning or whatever to understand it it's it, it, it's pretty straightforward um and we would use that information to you know, that information would be shared amongst the development academy teams i would assume i don't know the ins and outs but so to prove that this kid actually is in this maturation um, group yeah. and he's not just being brought down, he or she's not being brought down. So I think this information is to prevent those arguments. Um, I'd like to think the Development Academy is a little more, I guess we would say, serious and more recognising or more about recognising the individuals and their pathway and yeah. not so much... The coach because we I spoke to a DA coach recently who just said you know my kids haven't really played for anything for the last six months they haven't really competed to win a division or a tournament or anything like that mm -hmm. so there's no real there's no real need for him to have a better yeah a sandbagger so to say you know yeah. the, the, the whole structure is more about that individual pathway yeah so um, how I've seen it before where you line all the players up on the field and kind of split the group in half, but you line them up by height. Is mm. that, I mean, that's a simple way of doing it. That's a, and I mean, it doesn't, it's not, it's not nailed on. I understand that, but seeing where they'll, you have you know, 30 players and you split the group in half from based on height. Yeah. I think that'd be more, I think that within your training session, you could do that, but what, how do you just do that in isolation? How do you do that just once and not do it every session? Or right. how does that fit into your plan and your philosophy and your individual player plan? Um, I, I, don't really, yeah, I don't really know how to answer that. I don't know how to... No, that's fair. And I think that's probably come from... And I, I, I've witnessed this. And then maybe that's just come from somebody that is aware of it yeah. and is trying to implement it within a practice. But maybe doesn't have access or has not gone through things like measuring the maturation of the players. But yeah. um, that's but people trying. Yeah. 
And I think also we talk about the measurement of maturation. I don't think I don't know outside of the DA is like even in North California NPL. I don't know. I don't think you're allowed to play down at all. No, no, there's no playing down. So I, and I don't know if that ever will be the case, because I think then because we're going away from the the DA, maybe they're scared that it would be abused a little bit. Sure. Um, because then there's more of an emphasis on you know winning. You got your state cups and your leagues and your promotion and relegation, which, which I which I don't argue with. I think it's great, but, um. I think there's a lot of value in it, even for me, just receiving the feedback results and yeah. seeing, and almost reaffirming what you see anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I see players that I think sometimes are a little slower, or they just generally undeveloped in comparison. Yeah. yeah. And then when you see the results, you think. Oh, of course. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, it's just uh, and the goal is more information for the coach. We're we're trusting coaches to be, you know, the player development from an individual's side, and we're trying to just give more information to coaches. <clears throat> if it just reaffirms your subjective beliefs, which were probably right in the, at the start, and um, that just gives you an objective backup, I suppose. If you need to have conversations, or you feel like now you need to move the player up or down, sure, you've got okay. Well, here's the the. The information of the data is we've proven is like actually he or she is in this grouping physically so let's try it for a few games <clears throat> and let's see what players experience is like um, and I think I think with that said people tend to forget we, we ask the question how players will do playing up or down physically and technically and tactically but we forget socially that some players might not fit to go play down and some players might not be able to go express themselves playing up because they don't want to they're not used to being in an older environment or being with older players so I think there's more to it than just the physical and the technical side there's, there's the social side as well which is which is tough but again the information is just for coaches to try and make more informed decisions and more reasoning behind their decisions I think you think about even just looking at a player and instead of shouting at them or demanding more or the typical kind of work harder type yeah. conversation with that kid yeah you come from a background where you you expect that that kid is going to be underdeveloped or underperforming because of just their simple age that you can appreciate that and it's a different conversation it's a different approach with that player as opposed to the traditional kind of everyone should should perform the same way yeah and it just doesn't work that yeah way. exactly Speed is something else that we've we've talked a lot about, and I think of the many games that I've lost as a coach where speed has beaten us, which is the ball over the top, and then the super fast kid runs through, and they probably have ten chances and score one of them, and they win one zero. But that speed has got him there every single time. But I have a feeling it's a little more important than that, where there's a little more variation of what speed actually is to a player. Yeah, and I think probably in the the ages those early ages where you're beginning to play 11 v 11 I think speed really can take over and, and change games so maybe that backs the argument that players shouldn't be playing 11 v 11 at certain ages because there is such a variance in players who yeah. are 6 foot and they've got these long limbs and they're always going to win that <laughs> ball over the top sprint and is that taken away from the entire team's development it, it probably is but um, you've also I mean it can be faster in smaller spaces and you can you know, I can see one player who's great at making those thirty meter sprints to get on the end of a ball, or there's the players who are in the ten by ten space in the field who are just super fast cognitive speed people who they can just react really quickly to other people's movements or to to ball movements or whatever. And um, and I think it goes to your goes to your philosophy is like, what do you want your game to look like and what's your what is your game model? What's your philosophy? And is are you playing direct? Are you is it is that an old school way to do it? Is that how you're going to get players to the next level, or is it having players who are really good in tighter spaces or who can think faster? And I think a lot of people just describe speed as that flat out sure, longer yeah. sprint. But I, I see speed because of how I see the game is more so being faster thinkers in smaller spaces rather than relying on a ball over the top. I mean every game will have those long balls sure. on top where there is those longer distance speeds and that's what soccer is you need to have speed and smaller and longer distances um, but I think if you're trying to develop it within your train sessions it, I think going back to your game model is, is always a good way to do it is if, if you want to play a certain way and your sessions are based in possession based in smaller smaller tighter spaces how do you bring out speed make sure the kids or the players are developing their speed within that 
training session or that that exercise is is difficult um because if you're like me when i coach when i coach soccer it's very games based i struggle to sectionize where i'll just do a game and then take all the kids away and just have them do pure athletic skills um it's it's always challenging to try and mix those athletic skills with into your game model or whatever whatever exercise you're doing So you're an average coach, we've got one practice, two practices, sometimes three or four if you're lucky, but how do we now begin to bring in some of this this strength training, this speed training? Are there I know from when you've worked with my teams, we've had smaller rondos, for example, is a good start with isolated strength movements and then straight back in. So it's kind of like a flip-flop between the two. That's one way that I really appreciate bringing it in. Are there other ways or is that the main way that you would bring this into your practices? Do you do it every session? Do you do it once a week? Are the same things that you do? Kind of what's your structure for whether you're revising or whether you're doing this with your own players? Well, I think going back to what your philosophy in your game model is I think every session should have all parts of the game. It should have, you know, defending, attacking, transition, and then the physical qualities you should have accelerations, decelerations, that should have a lot of um cognitive speed, like making quick decisions in tighter spaces, and then also longer distance sprints, because we're trying to develop players who can handle all the demands of the game and the demands of the game are short distance sprints, long distance sprints, a lot of change of direction, a lot of cognitive speed. Um so it, the easy way to do it, I think, is to isolate it from your training session or to do it in your warm-up or with your groups. I was doing some sort of technical practice at the start of their session. So it, players, a lot of the time, I think that players think if it's isolated from the training session, it's branded as fitness. Sure. So I've always challenged myself, and I, I haven't, I'm still still working on the best way to do it, but always have the ball with it and some sort of, game or some sort of it was, you know, through doing 3v1s and 5v2s as it progressed but then going okay we'll play that for two minutes and then you've got a minute of some sort of strength work or a minute of some sort of speed work and then go back into your rondos and it was very quick transitioning between both and there wasn't a lot of standing around I don't think um, rather than the kind of more simple easier approach of just lining everyone up and saying you know go cone A cone B um, it's a race or whatever sure. at least this was soccer and then you isolate a movement and there's a little challenges chances as a strength conditioning coach to coach um, and talk about the details of you know decelerating or accelerating or the jumping and uh, or reaction speed we do a lot of mirror games with your groups I think because um, it was quite timely for them as uh, it was 1v1 mirror games trying yeah. to get separation and get trying to really yeah. sell the dummy and how are you using different body shapes to, to create separation because that's what the game demands um, and even within your if you're even playing 11 v 11 the game will demand that anyway but we're just doing more of it I think in our earlier parts of our training session um, and that's how I view it so I'll do the example with your group was playing 3v1 rondos or 5v2s and going for two minutes and making sure it's competitive making sure there's an outcome and then going okay you got two minutes now and working on some deceleration or some some jump and jumping on some landing or some strength stuff or is a different theme based on where they're at in their development and their age um, and then towards the end of that kind of warm-up phase where they finish those faster mirror games yeah so they finish that section and then they're ready to go into probably what i kind of knew that you were going to do is you go into your bigger your your maybe your small side of games with your tactical purpose but they've already got through their different components of the game and their They've worked on developing their strength. They've worked on developing their acceleration and deceleration with the coach there trying to guide them to be, do it a little bit better, I think. Because um, there's one thing just telling them to do it and there's another thing telling them to do it and then maybe guiding a few of them who are at the lower end just to kind of catch up with the rest of the group, group or setting examples for the entire group so they can all just get a little bit better in each session. And it's tough. And again, that goes back to subjectivity. Is like, are they actually getting better? Um and I think over time you can see that they do, especially if you're working with ages that you can manipulate, like ages 11 through 13. You can really manipulate how they move with the right coaching, the right cues, and the right um, the right amount of stimulus and the right amount of challenge. I think also when we communicate about that, that's I know what you're doing, I stay involved with you, and then yeah, my okay. my demand of the players involves what they've just worked on too. And I think kind of mention it where if you if it's separated as fitness 
then they just do it because they need to do it and they don't care and it's done. Yeah. Whereas, hey, remember what we just did with Barry? That deceleration, why are you flying in there or have yeah. control in this area yeah. of the game? And it becomes relatable. And I think we're very lucky to have, I'm very lucky to have had you working with them prior. So AI can learn. And we talked earlier about how important it is to have role models and people that you can look up to. Yeah. And But then also recognizing that I don't, know that stuff all right i do but i don't and i don't have the experience and the education that you have so why would i not ask you and work with you in that situation and i think that's one of my biggest things for all coaches is realizing that you don't know everything yeah and you should be asking questions you should be inviting people to work with you that you respect but that you can also take something from so I think about you with the physiology side of the, for the boys, this strength and speed, and there's so much value for them that I have learned that I see you do it, and I can take it into the rest of our practices. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's also the relationship between, depending on the environment, you've got a lot of support staff, and me being your support staff in that case, I, I had my, you know, I know, in theory, I should know what you're going to be doing for your sessions, and in theory, I should know your philosophy. And say if I know that you're gonna do, you're in a phase where you're gonna do be doing a lot of two v two, three v threes, a lot of um, games that involve um, separation and kind of physical change of directions. Anyway, maybe I don't include those mirror games in the warm up, and maybe there's something that's a bit more important because I know you're gonna do that mm. in your game model. You're gonna be doing two v two, so the the boys are gonna be really taxed anyway. Sure, they're gonna be challenged to change direction a lot. Um, so maybe in the warm-up, I don't do those really demanding mirror games, but I work on some technical aspect or some stability aspect of actually changing direction. Um, and I think that's really important because we see a lot, and I was, I'm still guilty of it, is just showing up for a session and just doing what I believe is important for that group right then and kind of just being covering the bases with it. But I admit, sometimes had no idea what the coach is going to do. Maybe the coach had just planned to run them into the ground or planned to play you know, three v three is the whole session, and it's really physically demanding. And then we're you're completely overreaching and doing too much. So I think it's, and it's been tough to be. It's tough for people in my position to work with a big variety of teams and a variety of coaches because everyone sees the game differently. So, sure. and that means you know twenty different conversations each day to understand what you're doing that day or, um, what you're doing that week. So I think there has to be a relationship to understand the coach's philosophy, um, and I think within youth soccer and soccer in general I think S&C coaches or fitness coaches people just assume that they can just work with 20 different teams and they can they can cover the bases and they can get through things that I think are important for that age group and they're um, figuring out what's most important for them but work with that many teams doesn't allow them to understand what the coach is actually going to be doing anyway so it goes back to the game will always present your sessions should always present what the game presents I think so yeah. I think we talked about sprinting short distance, sprinting long distance, decelerating, change of direction, cutting, being deceptive, all those different things that the game brings up anyway. So maybe we don't need to do them in our warm-up because your session's going to have them anyway. Touch on um, timings there too, uh, briefly. Uh, we'll do this for two minutes, we'll do this for one minute. What's your um, process for using timings like that? Um, or your thought process or even just kind of why yeah I think a lot of people would argue that you, depending on the age and the level and if you know a lot of these current coach licenses you're you're being challenged to do assignments on your periodization and your exact time of each exercise yeah. but you know as well as I do as soon as you step on the field and the boys are goofing off or they love that exercise and they're buzzing about it we'll do okay let's just do one or two more let's do a few more minutes of this because I can see their excitement and it's for some reason they're all bought in today whereas yesterday they weren't so I had to cut it short and um, so I think the, the human and the coach's view is the most important part and not being so rigid with two minutes on two minutes off two minutes on two minutes off. like okay two minutes on okay they're having a great time so maybe let's just do an extra rep at the end of this so they can keep getting more out of it because they're engaged right now or some of them are goofing off so I'm just going to cut a little bit short and so you can get through you know your practice your technical tactical practice um, but for me I'd have kind of an idea of what the exercise that I have planned with the group and what they demand physically and what the rest ratios are with them um, and usually what I've scratched down I'll be kind of near to 
near to that. Sure. I wouldn't be on my stopwatch, okay, two minutes done, everyone stop. Right? It's gone two minutes, 20 seconds, and they're still enjoying what they're doing, and they're still being challenged. It's like, that's, that's, I think that's great, I think that's fine. Um, so I don't know if that answers the It does, the, it, re- the it really does, yeah. yeah. And I think I'm more interested in it because they tend to see where coaches will let it go too long, yeah. and then the intensity tails off, and the enjoyment of it tails yeah. off. And then I also believe there's kind of this, you know, and we go back to summer camps where there was a, a game that everybody loved to play. So you kind of held that as a reward for performance. And yeah, so I yeah. think the same thing, if you can play a, I mean, even with periodization through the licenses now, you talk about a 1v1 can last for 30 seconds to 45 seconds. Mm. Whether they're having fun or not, they're probably gonna top out by a minute at the, at the latest, I, yeah. I, it's, it's a long time to play. And I think realizing that for coaches too. So with bigger numbers, yeah, more time I think is really valuable, but really understanding that they just can't perform beyond a certain amount of time in a certain exercise. And I think that's where reps are really important. And you yeah. mentioned if they love it, we'll just do one more. We won't necessarily add more and more time or go for another two minutes yeah. on top of that two minutes. We'll take that break. And then they can hit it again. Or you know, using that to your advantage as a coach and say, oh, you know, did you guys enjoy that? They're like, yeah. Do you want to do one more? It's like, yeah. And then you know, that's your, go. that's yeah. your nugget. That's your ticket to like a bit more buy on the next time you do that. And um, I also think within the licenses and a lot of the information you might take online, or there's so much information out there is like how your session should be structured in terms of seconds and minutes and space and all that stuff. It's all great information, but I think it's interpreted to the extent that the think about the kids we're working with are robots and they will perform 100% of their effort in their 1v1 but they but they won't sure you know and I, I think we're not dealing with robots I think that has to be considered as well but I think you talked about when the quality the intensity tails off I think that's really important for coach to recognize if you set up your 2v2 games or your 1v1 games and you're you know for the first 20 seconds it's really intense it's really fast and you're, it's getting what you want to get out of it there's a lot of interactions there's a lot of people taking each other on and and then for some reason after 30 seconds it just looks crap you know the the, the movements have gotten slower people are losing the ball they're falling over themselves like note that down and say okay on you know that week that week one we did 20 seconds and it was great but as soon as i got to 30 seconds it was done mm-hmm. it was so maybe we can just add gradually build up that 30 seconds and not just go from 30 or 40 seconds at the start because there's no point in doing 20 seconds of fast and then just having them being really fatigued and then their movement quality and their intensity going way down because so we're trying to develop players who have movement quality and intensity and speed throughout a whole game rather than just doing it for 20 minutes and then the rest of the game is just labored movements sure. you know and that's where periodization comes in is if you can plan that out in a in a in a broader sense of being able to build from your 20 seconds of really quality 1v1s to eventually maybe by the end of the season of or maybe the end of their three-year plan is then they can do 1v1s for one minute and it's still quality yeah and they want more but you're capping it now because maybe physical qualities are a bit more managed as you get older. So maybe our 11-year-olds, we don't want to be really, really rigid with our times, but we can recognize when they get tired and say, oh, that was 20 seconds. And or that was 30 seconds. Yeah. As a coach, yeah. yeah. Not, I've just created the plan, so we're going to do it, but yeah. actually giving yourself feedback and knowing what, what level your players are at, what you can expect of them. Too. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we're always trying to look for quality and, even talking about the 1v1s again, you always want the technical quality, right? You always want them to be able to execute the skill with great quality and sure. great deception if they're doing a move or whatever it is. And as soon as they're training and doing that slower and slower, you know, there's a good chance that they'll do it slower in a game. They're not actually getting better at that. So if you can cap it at where they reach their limit and allow them to rest and recover fully and then go do it again, you know, two minutes later, three minutes later, and they still do that quality. Yeah that's a lot more beneficial than having them just do it while they're under complete fatigue and doing it slow and labored and then there's an increased chance of getting injured or you know someone just smacks together because they're tired or it just looks crap and then their experience of their 1v1 is not as good as it was yeah. when they just did it for quality for 20 seconds and they felt great I, that's a, sometimes how I see it and it's tough to build it into your like your year long periodization model or your if you're working with teams for two years your two year plan or your five year plan or if you're a DOC and you're you know, supposed to be working with coaches on their their longer term plan. Like, how do you mix all this stuff in? It's really, really difficult. It's it's really hard. But I think 
just recognizing when the quality of whatever exercise you're doing goes down is maybe that's a good time to call it and then build yeah. from there yeah and even i think just to finish on that really looking at what a 1v1 looks like in a game it's a couple of seconds yeah right you've received the ball you, you maybe you look up pressure comes and this is often the variation of one we want the pressure comes from behind or the pressure comes from the front or if you take a second then a second player comes in and yeah. replicate in those moments so yeah. you don't need a minute you really don't yeah because you get through a 1v1 and maybe another 1v1 in a game and then the ball's gone and then yeah it may come back to you in 20 seconds or, and that's where i think timing can be really valuable because the demand on the player is realistic yeah but then also being able to gradually overload them gradually over time is that when you're driving your physical quality so when it does happen that little jimmy has for some reason he's got four 1v1s in a row in a game and he does them all with can do like, them all, no, that's yeah. from doing it for 20 seconds in a training session so it's gradually overload them but definitely gradually not just from the start doing one minute of 1v1s because that's what it said in your coaching license or that's what google told you we're coming into summer we've got I had a conversation with a parent the other day and the question was, uh, we don't have practice, so what, what, what can the player be doing? Should they, what, what kind of sprint should they be doing? How long should they be running for? Can they do push-ups? Is that going to help them? Yeah. Help me out. <laughs> Get me through this myth of these players needing to do all of this physical activity to remain prepared for the soccer season. Yeah. Have we got it backwards there? Well, I think it depends on their age, and you have to consider. I think you have to consider the kids' age, what they're going through physically. Are they are they going through a growth spurt? You know, maybe it's time to actually deload their training a little bit, and maybe focus on strength training. So when they go through their big growth spurt in the fall, they can actually handle the demands of the game and don't have to sit out for six weeks. And mm -hmm. that's that foresight is is tough to see sometimes. I think because kids just want to be kids. But I think when you're talking to parents as a coach, is you know encourage them to encourage them to play, go that multi sports approach. I think is really important in the summer. And I think to find out about programs that they'll really enjoy. And whether it's intense soccer training, maybe the kid can handle and enjoy that. You always have to be as a parent and as a coach to be able to assess if the kid is really and really enjoying it. Um, and I think uh, summer months. I've got loads of emails already this week. I was like, oh, can you guide us on what we should do for our summer? And yeah, I could send you some soccer-specific program for six weeks and you know, you're, in the, you're on strength training three days a week and you're doing these box-to-box -box runs with a ball or without a ball three days a week. It's like, I, I don't know if you're going to enjoy that. Yeah. But maybe you're really intense about your soccer and that's how you hold your beliefs. Like, that's what I need to be doing to be good at soccer and to be really successful next season. Maybe it's, it's right for you, but for the most part, it's not, I don't think. Um, so I think variety and cross training and yeah summer camps whether intense soccer summer camps or casual ones or whatever I think are always a good way but I think when you get into your older more performance ages um, and still considering how maybe intense the player themselves is about their training and their game maybe then you can start to prescribe as a fitness coach or coach uh, you know specific running amounts or specific sure. training amounts but um, and I think it's tough as, as well as in the States there's not a lot of team play during, through the summer months and I think it, you know I think you're the same as your view on the game it should be developing your soccer should be through games based should be replicating the game as much as possible um, and that's tough for kids during the summer and they think that as well culturally they think the summer is the time to go running on the field and going to the gym or to go you know just to just to you know, work tirelessly on my fitness, and then come in, come in fatigued in the fall, and then you're at the bottom of the group because you're so tired, and yeah, your experience yeah. of the game goes down, and then you're like, oh, I'm thinking about quitting, and I, yeah, I don't know, I see that, I see that a lot with kids, so it's tough to answer those questions. I try to guide parents away from the X's and O's of distances and that amount because of how I believe soccer is, but I think other fitness coaches. I was just reading an article last night. It was I think a coach from RSL, a really well known strength and conditioning coach. He was sharing what he does with his academy, U16, U17 academy players through the summer. And it's really detailed, it's really specific, it's gym and field base and a lot of running. And people might take that and say, oh, I saw this, this guy doing this with the RSL academy. Um, do you think my 14-year-old recreational player will, you know, will work? I was like, no. Sure, yeah. You've yeah. got to think about context. And that, that article was shared for top-level academy players. And it was really, really good information. It just it, it doesn't apply to everyone. It's not relevant, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So then what about um, even with um, coaches thinking about needing to stay in contact with their team or like it's that's generally a fear kind of it's summer so I don't don't see my team we don't train like here in San Francisco we don't have access to fields yeah. so your team is effectively off for the summer and I think about we're very fortunate to have the beach so I set up today beach soccer that's awesome yeah. come on out five o'clock I'll see you there yeah and facilitating and I have no plans on coaching I have every plan on playing with them yeah. and yeah. losers go in the ocean and I just think if you can really, if you want your players to continue playing or can people continue to ask, set something up for them. Yeah. We will be at, and it, it's not like you and I, where it was organic and you just show up and everybody will be there. Yeah. It's, I may need to use Team Snap and I may have to say, at yeah. five o'clock, I'm going to be at this field or we will be at this field. See you there if you can make yeah, it. Yeah, I think we need to adapt as coaches. We have to, we're used to this scheduling, this over scheduling of kids and mm. parents and they rely on these team snaps and scheduling <laughs> I think we just got to probably accept that as how it is and, and use that maybe to our advantage and actually put things on the schedule and the calendar and I think that's cross training going to play beach soccer because it's a different sport um, and I know that because I've been working with the with the US soccer with the beach national team for the last few months and they just qualified for the World Cup and seeing that as it's it's a completely different sport and it challenges yeah. the body in different ways there's less impact on the joints it's great it challenges the kids to be acrobatic and creative and uh, it ch just challenges them a lot differently and still developing soccer but it's it's challenged their bodies differently I think so that's a great I think that's great I think more coaches could could even make that as part of their you know their office their summer program is yeah. like we play beach soccer once every two weeks or we're going to play in this beach soccer tournament that's in Ocean mm -hmm. Beach in July or whatever I think that's just one route or instead of beach you just gather out at the local basketball you could get rent a hall for you know 50 bucks and you bring your team and yeah. you play basketball and I don't, know, I don't know maybe that's something the kids can then drive themselves after one or two sessions of you being there and take it on yeah, yeah take go it on take it on yourself it. and then it's yeah, it's kid driven and it's away from you know coach Lee judging us if my basketball skills are good or not like, no you guys go do it and like I'll, I'll book the hall for you there's no issues there yeah yeah um but I think the yeah, I think the cross training in the summer is great, but also making sure whatever they're doing is enjoyable. So let's wrap this up. And um, what are we saying to the coaches listening to this that's perhaps interested in this or has no idea? And hopefully, we're changing their 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 impression or their their history of the way they were taught, so they teach the same way. Um, well, I think. First of all, I think it has to, you have to think bigger picture than just your six month your three month season or your six month plan or your year with this team. You got to think bigger than that. You got to think what you're exposing the kids to right now and how that would influence and influence their ability as soccer players and as athletes in three or four years time when they got to you know compete perform. Um, I think that's the number one thing. I think coaches forget that. They go straight to, okay, we're going to do 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and we're going to get them really fit and fast right now. But it doesn't work like that. You know, the progression, as much as any stock coach knows, is technical progression, tactical progression, physical progression, all takes a long time. Um, so I think that's number one, is definitely thinking bigger picture. And I think number two, um, I think going back to your game model and how you see the game and what you think is important for these kids over their period that they're with you, your two years or three years that they're with you. Um, how can you include you know, different identifiable exercises within your session that will encourage attributes, whether physical or otherwise, within your warm-ups or your earlier parts of your session or um, in your extracurricular activities? How can you encourage um, a work with a coach in a city who's is I think is the best and every you know every one of his start of his sessions will incorporate some sort of physical challenge but that influences his game model and then deception is a big you know phrase he'll use a lot but he'll play his little warm-up games and he'll have his technical challenges and his all opposed play but then he'll you know break it down for a quick little stretch and then have some sort of challenge that be able to bring into his game model and deception is a word that he'd use and he'd do those mirror games and he'd do the reaction games and um, I think you can include that in your training sessions without having to really isolate it from from the game sure, not yeah, having kids yeah. lined up doing push-ups sit-ups and 
shuttle runs you can you can do within your session of your structure of your session and so the kids still see it as soccer right they don't see it as a separate entity altogether but then the flip side you've also got to bear in mind that a lot of people culturally think that fitness has fitness training has to be done in isolation to improve your ability as a soccer player i think we have a chance and a challenge as a coach coaches to break that culture a little bit and show that we can get players really really fit and fast for our game model within our training sessions without having to isolate it. Mm. I think that's my one of my biggest takeaways is considering using this downtime to put your team together in something else. Go and play in a basketball yeah. league. I think that's a, a brilliant idea that is I don't know anything about basketball. Yeah. So what a great thing for me to learn too, because people always talk about the the crossover between the sports, like the movements and, and some of the things you just mentioned there. So embracing other sports and there's a lot of pushback from soccer coaches and maybe because they get a lot of pushback from traditional sports too. Soccer's always kind of been the black sheep. And now I think it there's kind of the pushback back against those sports where kid says I'm going to play baseball and the soccer coach is like what do you play that for but basketball is great because it yeah. teaches you how to protect the ball and use your body right? right keep the ball away from the defender and you think if you actually look at a game you probably if you spent enough time on a team you'd figure out who was playing basketball because of how they maneuver their body to mm. you know turn their back to a defender and make sure the ball is away from the defender rather than some kids who just kind of expose the ball really easily and they haven't figured out how to use their body to protect the ball just yet I really appreciate your time, Barry. This is brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great. It was good fun. So there it is. A alternative view or a corresponding view with what you're doing on the field, what you really can also be considering from just having an open mindset to your players being engaged in other sports or in other activities to just simply understanding where they're at physically and then understanding what the workload or the demand that you can have of your players based on who they are and what they're doing. Simple things like understanding if they have been to track the two hours before your practice that they're not going to work as hard but they're still there. So how can you adapt and, and change your practice to still involve them? Yeah, you can't have them running around and chasing the ball if, for example, they're a central midfielder. But you can have start points in a practice where that player will begin with the ball and move the ball on. And you'll find the best coaches out there are the ones that have this open mind and they engage that your players are active in other sports. And as Barry said, you can begin to identify those players who have certain qualities. They can move in different ways. They have this ability such as hand-eye coordination. And that translates into how they move, how they read a ball, how they read the flight of the ball, how they open up. And so many more qualities come from these individuals and especially with the younger age that have this open mindset, an open environment where they can go and play other sports. And as I wrapped up there with Barry talking about summer, encourage your kids to go and be kids. Go and play other sports, go and experience new things, go and meet new people, go and live your life and come back to my environment fully refreshed and fully ready to engage because I have supported and I've pushed you because I hear so many players that are committed to their team and as I said it feels like they have to be because that seems to be the right answer but it's really not. I'm working with in my environment 11, 12, 13, sometimes 14 year old boys. These have by no means figured out their pathway in life and part of my role as a coach is to also open their eyes and develop these people. We talk about the physical maturation. We talk about them as individuals and how they're all completely different. Well, they're all playing the same sport, but they are completely different and they have other passions and they have other engagements. Engage with that interact with your players, become familiar with what they love to do. And if anything, it helps set you with expectations of what that player is really going to offer to your team or to you as a coach, because they may be engaged in other things three, four, five days a week. And that may not just cut it with your expectation for the team. And that's a conversation that you need to have. Maybe you're coaching the development academy or a higher level of play and you have this expectation. Well, when you understand what that player is into, then you begin to assess what that environment 
looks like for that player and if it's going to work for them. And if you're in a good club or a good environment, then there will always be an alternative option for them to play. Conversation with Barry has really helped me to put a finger on the pulse of what I thought I could already feel in terms of who my players are, what they're doing, what they're expecting from me and, and little things about their their maturity and their development. And of course, having him work with my players and seeing him in action has made a huge difference. But I really hope it helps you too. And I'd love to hear from you. As I said in the commercial, I'd love to hear from you via a voice message. Just send me a note and let me know if this is helpful, if there are other things that you think that we could get from Barry too, because he is a friend of mine. He works with me. He's not far away and I would be happy to interview him again and pull up more information and maybe go deeper on things like peak high velocity and the maturation rate. So if you have any feedback, definitely let me know. You can always find me at Lee Dunn Soccer on Twitter. Another thank you again to Tactical Pad for their support and for access to their software. Remember, you get 10% off from LeeDunnSoccer.com. So jump over there, join the, join the band. It's a brilliant tool and I use it all the time. And it's serious, check out my Instagram at LeeDunnSoccer and it's on there. I use it all the time. There is more always coming from Heads and Volleys and you will hear from us very soon.